Good evening. The reading today is from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1 um, through 16, and then picking up again at verse 38. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And picking up again at verse 38. You have, heard you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, Thank you, Isabel, for reading for us. Um, I'd love to also... um, Oh, hello. I'd love to also welcome you to Chalmers this evening, um, as Ian did earlier. And we're really glad that you're with us. My name's Adam, I'm on the staff team, and I head up the undergraduate student ministry uh, here at Chalmers. Um, Just one practical thing to flag before we get started. This was originally planned to be the last um, week in Matthew for the next little while, and we were due to start something else next week. Um, But for those of us who've been here the last few weeks, I think we've really been getting a lot um, from our time in Matthew, and so we're going to continue on in the evenings, um, right up until Advent. Um, We thought it'd be a shame to stop halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we'll keep going, and we'll pick up uh, chapter 6 next week. Um, So that's why if you were here this morning, you might have found a a new uh, term card um, inside the Bible. Um, If you didn't get that this morning, I think you should be able to grab one in the foyer afterwards. 
Uh, this evening, our passage is Matthew uh, 5, 38 to 48, um, just the second part that was read. Um, please keep that open in front of you as we go through. Um, if you've closed your Bible, it's on page 810. Um, before we dive in, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your commandments is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your rules are true and righteous. Your instructions for how we should live are good for us. Please would we be those who love your words and treasure them. Help us to hear you speak to us through our passage this evening and help us to respond rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, contains some of the most radically countercultural and counterintuitive teaching in the Bible. If you've been with us the last few weeks, I wonder if it's hit you just how much what Jesus has been teaching contradicts and challenges what is considered normal and acceptable in society and what we'd naturally consider normal and excusable in our own lives. So a couple of weeks ago, we heard, don't murder. Um, I guess we all think that's a good rule. But then Jesus went on to say that even if we just hold someone in contempt, even if that's just in our thoughts, well, that's serious and makes us liable to judgments. Um, but if you're anything like me, it's tempting to think that's a bit extreme. I mean, what's the big deal? No harm, no foul, right? If I can keep the anger on the inside or even maybe just vent to a friend, well, then what's wrong with that? Jesus has been showing us where a holy God's moral bar really is. And if we're honest about our own hearts, we all fall very far, far short of that. And we looked at anger, lust, marriage and divorce, being true to our words. And tonight we'll look at two more examples, um, retaliation and love. Um, Jesus says in verse 44, love your enemies. As I've thought about this passage this week, it's hit me just how countercultural and counterintuitive what Jesus is saying here is. And the ideas we'll hear this evening are not values that are held by the culture we live in. They go way above and beyond what is expected. And which makes sense. We did hear a few weeks ago, and we had that again in the, the beginning of the reading, that Christians are to be salt and light. But it's not just that society doesn't uphold these values. I think loving our enemies, um, which is the headline theme really for our evening, um, is something that just doesn't come naturally to us as sinful human beings. In fact, in our passage, we'll see that Christians are to love even persecutors. Um, but if you're anything like me, you can have, have, have a hard enough time loving people who cause just mild offense or inconvenience. And the driver who pulls out in front of you, we want to blast the horn to make sure they know they've screwed up. Or when you're on the other side of that, and we've accidentally pulled out in front of someone else, and they take the telling off a bit too far, and they blast the horn for a bit longer than what is reasonable. And well, then we're the ones feeling grieved and curse them under our breath or rant about them to the people in our car. Or a bit more seriously, when we're being unfairly treated by a superior at work, maybe singled out for criticism, are we really supposed to love that person? I mean, don't hit back, that sounds fair enough, but actually positively love them. Jesus will take us even into the realm of where people cause us really serious harm. Um, serious persecution, for example, it's an area that Jesus specifically highlights. 
I mean, there's a charity called Open Doors, which has a web page for each country in the world where Christians are persecuted. And it tells you the kind of horrendous things that Christians experience in those countries. Um, Christians imprisoned in labor camps, tortured, sometimes killed on the spots. And even into these kinds of contexts, Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Contexts where there really are enemies who are hostile and violently opposed to Christians. And I really don't think we're to think Jesus is being naive here, either about the complexity of life or the extent of suffering that is possible in life. We'll reflect in a lot more detail later, but that is something he knew and experienced deeply himself. And that's all just to say, Jesus' teaching here is radical. And of course, we need to think carefully about what this does and doesn't mean in various contexts. But up front, it is important to say that it is meant to challenge us and it isn't easy. It is unlikely that we can naturally think um, like uh, how Jesus is in teaching us to think in this passage. So let's dive in and think about our first point. Um, it's on the handouts if you want to follow along on there. Um, first point is, rather than retaliate, Christians are to be willing to suffer loss. Christians are to be willing to suffer loss. And we're in verses 38 to 42 for this. And this section follows the same pattern we've seen before in Matthew 5. Jesus starts with the Old Testament law, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the principle behind this law is proportional punishment. And in fact, one of the things it did was it actually restrained revenge and retaliation from getting out of hand. Instead of the sort of vendetta approach, of individuals taking matters into their own hands and violence just spiraling, or there was a legal procedure to measure out fair justice. And it's important to note that Jesus is not overturning the legal principle of proportional justice here. In fact, he's already spoken about God's judgments in the Sermon on the Mount when he was addressing the issue of anger, for example, chapter 5, verse 22. And God's judgment is fair and measured. It's proportional. Jesus does believe in justice. I think instead it's fair to say Jesus is speaking against the vigilante approach of taking matters into your own hands and dishing out revenge. He's speaking against the misreading of this law that would seem it on face value to give me license to hit back at those who hurt me. He's teaching his followers not to retaliate even when we're wronged. Like how the law itself was actually designed to restrain revenge... Jesus' followers should be those who stop evil spiraling out of control. And he gives a few illustrations of what he's talking about. And turning the other cheek, giving you a cloak as well as your tunic, going the extra mile, giving to those who beg and want to borrow from you. Um, I think the borrowing example is most likely um, someone who's highly unlikely to pay you back, illustrates the principle of suffering loss. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be much of a cost um, to letting them borrow. And it is worth saying that these are all illustrations of the big principle rather than specific rules for how Christians are to always behave in these situations. And we've seen this kind of thing before in the Sermon on the Mount. So back in verse 29, um, Jesus says to tear out your eye if it causes you to sin. And he didn't literally mean to tear out your eye. Um, It was an illustration of the principle that we ought to take radical action against lust. But please don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not trying to dampen how radical this attitude is. 
I think what's common across all of them is a willingness to suffer personal loss. So with turn the other cheek, for example, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus could have said, "Uh, just don't slap back. But instead he goes further, verse 39, turn to him the other also. And of course, that's not to say we're to actively invite um, further violence to us. Um, But instead, we're to be so radically willing not to retaliate that we would sooner endure another hit. Likewise, with the giving to the one who begs, I take it that's not a specific command to give whatever is asked whenever you're asked. The rest of the Bible encourages us to be wise with how we use our finances. And to give an example, 1 Timothy 5 says that we're to be able to provide for our relatives. And that would be a problem if we just gave away to anyone who asked us whatever amount. So this sort of thing does require wisdom. These aren't kind of blanket principles, just a set of rules to tick off. But each of them reinforced the big principle that we should be radically willing to suffer loss, to not assert our own rights above all else, and to have a default generous spirit um, who gives and is willing to endure loss rather than seeking revenge. We'll get into some examples um, in a moment, what that might look like for us. Um, But it's well worth stopping to think about how Jesus lived this out in his own life. And he was without sin, and so we can look to him to show us an example of living out this big principle. And don't worry about turning there now, but 1 Peter 2, 22-23 says this about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him he judges justly. In Matthew 27, we'll see Jesus brutally mocked, beaten, nailed to a cross to die. And yet he doesn't hit back. Isaiah describes Jesus in a prophecy hundreds of years earlier, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, not opening his mouth against the injustice he would face. Jesus is the ultimate example of resisting retaliation and being willing to suffer personal loss. His suffering was completely undeserved, and yet he never hit back. It's important for us to get clear on what this does and doesn't mean for us. And firstly, I take it this doesn't mean that Christians aren't able to defend themselves. I think the key reason for that is what's in view here is retaliation, It's this attitude of getting your own back and hurting those who hurt us that's being challenged. And this just isn't talking about self-defense. And secondly, I don't think it means that Christians shouldn't ever get the authorities involved. Um, It's personal vendettas that are being challenged by Jesus, taking justice into your own hands. That's the problem. God has given us civil authorities to restrain evil and protect people. And so this is um, not saying that Christians shouldn't call the police. And what this does mean is that we are to be so committed to not retaliating that we are willing to suffer the loss ourselves. We're not out for revenge. So, for example, if a Christian is experiencing bullying at work, it is right not to hit back verbally. It is right not to insult that person to other colleagues or friends or family. It is right not to harbor that resentment in our own hearts. But of course, that doesn't mean it would be wrong to report them to HR. 
And actually, that can be an act of love to others who could suffer in the same way now or in the future. The principle is that our default is to be willing to give and endure suffering ourselves. And how this works out in the various complexities in life needs wisdom. And that's actually one of the ways we can serve one another as a church family. And we can talk through with one another how these big principles apply in the particular situations that we find ourselves in. So that's Jesus' first teaching block, verses 38 to 42. In verse 43 to 47, he even goes beyond what he said in, in the first block. If so far we've said that our posture should be one that is willing to endure loss and suffering, that we shouldn't try to avenge ourselves, now Jesus moves beyond that to say that we should love those who wrong us. He says in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here's our second point. Christians are to love even our enemies. Christians are to love even our enemies. Again, Jesus quotes from a law in the Old Testament. At this end, there's something slightly different and unusual going on. Verse 43, um, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what's unusual here is it's only the first bit, the love your neighbor bit, that comes from the Old Testament. And that second half um, is not a direct quotation from the law. Um, It seems to be an inference that the people in Jesus' day had made from the law. Since the first half of the command, love your neighbor, um, just mentions neighbor, um, then I guess the kind of conclusion is we're off the hook when it comes to anyone else. That seems to be how the thinking went. Uh, But in actual fact, there were laws, if you read the Old Testament law, that explicitly commanded love towards those outside of God's people. And so Jesus corrects this misunderstanding of the law. He says instead, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I take it when he says love, he's meaning both an attitude and an action. So the attitude, firstly, it wants the good of the other person, even if they've wronged us. It doesn't mean we agree with them, or we think what they did was right, but we decide that we will love them. And this is radically different from what we naturally want. Often, of course, we want people who've wronged us to suffer. That's the exact opposite of the attitudes um, Jesus is teaching us uh, to have here. So uh, love is an attitude, but it's also an action. It's expressed in action. Um, And I think how love is expressed to those who've wronged us Um, Amidst the various complexities in life will depend massively on the situation. Um, Where there's been serious wrong, for example, it probably doesn't mean trust is quickly restored. Again, that's something to work through on a case-by-case basis with other Christians who know our situations well. Um, But the example that Jesus gives, um, an action of love, um, is prayer, which I think does apply in all situations. And whatever the wrong, whoever it is, we can pray for them. And I guess we don't always think prayer is an action, but it is. This is a hugely challenging command, um, to pray for them. Um, I take it means to ask God to act for their goods, which I take it ultimately means to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. In the case of persecution, we can only begin to imagine how hard that is to pray for the good of the people who have brought suffering to you or your family members. There's also a motivation um, baked into the text. Um, Let me read that again from verse 45. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Um, this is not saying we love our enemies to earn God as Father. Um, God has already been called our Father in the Sermon on the Mounts, um, chapter 5, verse 16, for example. What's more in view here is the idea of reflecting the family likeness, the family we already belong to as Christians. And verse 45 reminds us, God is in control of the sun and the rain, and he blesses both the good and the bad with both. Um, he doesn't show partiality in this way. It's an idea that we sometimes, uh, sometimes it's called God's common grace. All people get to enjoy some of God's blessings in this world now. And that's definitely not to say that God is for all people in the sense that he saves everyone. That's really clear in the Bible. But in this particular way, God does show kindness to everyone. And that's the motivation for us here, to love our enemies is we're to be like our Father, because he shows this kind of love. But there's another thing to notice about how Christians are to love, and that is it is to be radically countercultural. In fact, it's to be above and beyond what is normal in society. I'll read verses 46 and 47 again. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I think that's a really challenging question for us. What more are you doing than others? The point is, it's not unusual in the world for people to love their own. And there's nothing noteworthy about that. Virtually everybody does that. Even the bad people do that, is what Jesus is saying. Um, and to some of the original hearers, those bad people will be the tax collectors and the Gentiles. And I think this connects back to the idea that Christians are to be salt and light. Jesus isn't training us just to be good citizens and to live up to the moral standards of those around us. He's going way beyond that. As the light of the world, Jesus' followers are to stand out positively from the world. We're to be distinct, noticeably different I think by default, we take our moral keys from either what seems right to us um, or from what everyone else around us is doing. Um, But that's not right. Our keys need to come from Jesus, and the standard he's calling his followers to is much higher, so much higher than the world around. For Christian love to be distinctive, it needs to embrace enemies as well as friends. It means loving those who don't love you, It even means loving those who oppose you and even persecute you. And this is not a comfortable or an easy thing that Jesus is teaching his followers. I guess our lives as Christians would feel a lot easier if Jesus hadn't said this. Especially because looking at our own own hearts, enemies aside, sometimes we can even have a hard time loving people we just don't click with. It's easier for us to just exclusively spend time with our kind of people. We like a comfortable life, but Jesus doesn't let us do that. That's not the kind of radical, even enemy-encompassing love that Jesus is talking about. That's just what everyone else does. What more are you doing than others?
Again, Jesus is our supreme example here. And when he was hanging on the cross, having had nails driven through his hands, facing insults and mocking, he prayed in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. An amazing example of praying for those who persecute you. Even in the moment he was suffering most intensely, Jesus put his energy into praying for those who were causing his pain. So Jesus is our supreme example, but just a few examples um, which hopefully begin to illustrate what this might look like in practice. So maybe a a colleague at work or someone at school or university um, who's particularly hostile towards Christianity and perhaps to you as a Christian. I think the thing we can always do is pray for them. But I guess we don't want to do that and the temptation is to write them off and avoid them as best we can. But it is right, Jesus would say, it is right for us to pray that God would soften their heart to the gospel. And we want to continue to take opportunities to speak the gospel to them as they come up. Or if there's been a relationship breakdown in a family, or there's that person who's really just difficult to get on with in a family, he always brings down the atmosphere when they're around. We're really tempted to ignore that person like everyone else does to do as much as we can to stay out of their way. But I take it the point is Jesus would urge us as Christians to be radically different from everyone else, to love them and be willing to speak to them, to be guarded against speaking ill of them when they're not around. Now, this is far from easy, but it goes against all of our instincts. And, but that is the kind of love that Jesus is teaching us. Or maybe in a church, if someone's wronged us in some way, all we want to do is ignore them, act as if they weren't there, and just spend time with other people, which is particularly tempting and particularly easy to do in a a church of um, charmer's size. But again, Jesus' countercultural command is that we are to love them. It's not right for Christians to give one another the cold shoulder, and we're to seek reconciliation as far as it's in our power. Like I said earlier, thinking through the specifics is something that's best done together with an older, mature Christian, and he can understand your particular situation. And and so I just want to take the opportunity to um, encourage you, um, if there are things in this sort of area you're grappling with or you've got questions, um, please do speak to someone, um, maybe after the service or after the Q&A. Loving enemies is a hard thing, but it is also a very good thing. And without it, we would have no salvation. God has shown us tremendous love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to him. God's radical love toward us while we were his enemies is a powerful motivation for our love to those who have wronged us. In the Lord's Prayer, the next chapter in Matthew, we'll hear the words, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is not asking us here to do anything he didn't radically do in loving his enemies, even at the point that they were nailing him to the cross. We've seen that the bar is really high. Jesus' teaching here is radically countercultural and counterintuitive. It sounds extreme and unrealistic at first reading. And yet he, um, he even ups the bar in verse 48 
And here's our final extremely brief points and more of a conclusion. Verse 48, ye therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the Sermon on the Mount so far has been showing us just how high the bar of God's moral standard is. And here we get the most stark summary. It's perfection. We've been saying over the past few weeks that the Sermon on the Mount is designed to move us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to come to terms with the fact that we are poor in spirits, we're morally and spiritually impoverished. We fall so far short of the bar. Jesus was the only person who ever met the standards. In his earthly life, he never once sinned. He never burst into rage. He never looked at anyone with lust. He never lied. He never hit back when he suffered unjustly. And he loved his enemies, including us, to the point of dying for us on the cross. We've been saying Jesus' sermon should drive us to him for both the forgiveness and help to change that he can provide, only he can provide. If we're Christians, we have already been washed clean and declared righteous in God's sight. Our status now is perfect, and we have the Holy Spirit who is working in our hearts to make us more and more like Jesus until the final day when the Spirit's work in our lives will be complete, and we will truly be perfect in our conducts. And let me pray to close. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this challenging passage in your words. Father, as we look at our own hearts off the back of these words, we are conscious of just how far short we fall of your perfect standards. We find it so difficult not to retaliate when people wrong us or to grumble quietly. We find it so hard to love even our friends at times, much less our enemies. Father, thank you that if we are trusting Jesus, he has made us perfect in your sight. And we ask that you would help us to live the radical, countercultural, distinctive, salt and light lives that you call us to in this particular area um, that we've been hearing about this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.